there's a bit of an assumption where people think the scripture is used to uphold DVA practices um, and to uh, maintain that kind of power and control. But actually what I found was the opposite, that in terms of um, perpetrating abuse, scripture was very rarely referenced. Whereas survivors who were trying to carve a way out of that abusive situation were very much turning to scripture, both in their personal journey, but also their open journey in terms of leaving the relationship as well, that actually that was the one source they were turning to. Um, so just to give you an example, I had one survivor was talking about going into family meetings armed with books to say, look, I don't have to put up with this. My religion says this is not part of the faith. Um, and here is the evidence. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Dr Ramanara Chowdhury is course lead for Islam and Pastoral Care at the Markfield Institute for Higher Education. She has an undergraduate degree in ergonomics, a master's in psychology and completed her PhD exploring domestic violence and abuse in the UK Muslim population. She did this at Brunel University. Her PhD research was funded by the ESRC Grand Union Doctoral Training Programme. She is the author of several books aimed at community and practitioners in relation to domestic violence and abuse in Muslim communities. Her additional research interests include well-being, forensic mental health, spiritual abuse and intersectionality. Ramanara is also the head of the newly formed Centre for the Study of Well-being based at the Markfield Institute of Higher Education. Welcome, Ramanara. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Hi, Ramanara. Really glad that you're able to join us today for a conversation. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your career path and your areas of interest? Um, yeah, so I had a I had a bit of a shift in my career path actually. Um, I was previously working as a practitioner with survivors of domestic violence and abuse, um, focusing predominantly in the Muslim community. Um, and I decided that I wanted to upskill, basically, which is why I went back to university and did my master's in my in psychology. Um, but that's where I met my um, supervisor, to be supervisor for my PhD, and I was introduced to the idea of doing doctoral research. Um, and it just seemed the natural way to go in terms of this area. Um, so then I ended up applying for uh, doctoral studies, and and completing that really. And is ergonomics a, a natural basis for a career in um, understanding domestic violence? No, not really. <laughs> it's quite a different field. However, saying that, it is very much about putting the human at the focal point. Um, so after I did my undergrad, I went into other things and was doing a lot of um, community-related work and um, uh, and well-being kind of support. Um, but psychology was always one thing that really interested me. So there was, within my undergraduate, there was an element of psychology and putting the, the putting the person at the focal point. Um, so it did, I still use it actually to this day, I still apply it in the work that I do currently. Um, so yeah, I guess, basically I 
I guess it informs everything I do in the sense that I always think about putting the person first, what's happening for that person, what's going to support that person, what are the structures that need to be put in place. So actually it's all about centering the person at the core and then thinking about all the structures around them, which is essentially what, what happens within the ergonomics field, wherever, no matter what it is, whether you're taking a product, a service or a place, you're always looking at, well, who's going, who's going to use that product in the end or who's going to be the user of that, that um, service. And you're always thinking about trying to maximise uh, upon the potential usage for that person, potential benefit. So in terms of that conceptually, I certainly apply that to all of my work in terms of, well, who is it that's at the focal point here? Who do we need to consider? What's what's happening for them, really? Thank you. That, that's really interesting, because I think one of the things we found doing this podcast, actually, is that when people have had other interests or a broader interests just than a narrow forensic field it oft they often bring something that really enriches their work so it's it's interesting to hear about your background what what were the factors that led you to conclude that it, it might be useful to study domestic violence within the muslim community specifically so yes i was uh, as i mentioned i was previously working in a practitioner role supporting survivors um and it was clear at that point that there was actually very little support within the UK for Muslim female survivors in particular. That was the group I was working with. Um, so, I um, so so then I went on to my uh, my masters in psychology, and for my um, dissertation project, I was looking at domestic violence and abuse. And one of the things that became clear very early on was that actually there was very little literature in regards to Muslim communities and to how domestic violence and abuse actually manifests. Um, so that's what really got me interested, this idea that we had so much literature, we had so much theory, uh, a very good conceptual kind of understanding, but actually in terms of representation, it seemed quite poor. There was a lot of research around survivors and the experiences post the abuse and getting back on your feet and what, what, what was involved there. But actually in terms of the experience itself, how it manifests, the difference for different the differences for different communities, there just didn't seem to be very much out there. So that's where I was really interested in, that actually if if domestic violence and abuse at that point, I was thinking if it doesn't quite take place in the same way, does that mean we need to think about how we understand it for different communities? Uh, do we need to start thinking a bit more broadly? Do we need to start thinking differently? And then what does that mean for interventions as well? Um, so it was primarily because I realised there was very little literature in terms of understanding what's happening in the core of that relationship. Do you think that's that's true also of other elements of the criminal justice system? I'm just thinking that we seem very good at counting numbers in terms of how you know what proportion of um, prisoners, for instance, are drawn from different mm. ethnic backgrounds, but we seem much less good at thinking about how that might influence interaction with interventions for instance is that is that your experience yeah i would say so there's a couple of different pieces i've been working on actually with um, professor bill and winder and a couple of other colleagues and um this seems to be definitely the case and um, there's a piece of work i did with um dr ian mahoney at uh, nottingham Trent university as well um just looking at actually with different groups from the outset you've got different considerations to take into account you've got to think of well what's their um, what are their experiences in society? How do those issues, how do those experiences shape their interactions with different systems? And therefore, what does that mean in terms of outcomes? What does that mean in terms of interventions? 
what does that what does that mean for staff who are interacting with them and i think i think yes we are very good at counting those numbers but actually in terms of the experiences and why they've ended up in those positions we're not always good at exploring that as well um and i think if we got to the core of that um that would help in terms of both prevention but also um, interventions thereafter as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah it's, re it's really interesting and um also makes me want well, just thinking about the kind of like the there's a there's probably a lack of ethnic diversity amongst practitioners that are delivering interventions in prisons and i wonder whether people might be quite frightened to engage with thinking about tailoring interventions to different groups for fear of of how that might be interpreted um there's a really interesting paper um i've been working on with um uh, a student's been leading on it actually her name is sophia ibrahim she's based at um nottingham trent university she did this for her dissertation project um as part of her masters i believe um, so it was looking at the barriers that intervention staff face when they're working with um, Muslim males in particular for this study who have um, uh, convictions of a sexual, uh, sexual, um, sexual related convictions, basically. Um, and what's really interesting that's coming from that piece of work is this idea of actually people are afraid to ask. Uh, and I think when you look more broadly, it's... It, it's a very sensitive area. Um, it does make, I mean, there are lots of things going on on a social and political level, which make it difficult for people at the normal everyday level to be able to feel like it's okay to ask questions. And I think that goes both ways. So it's from both from uh, minority communities, but also the other way with when you've got intervention staff who aren't, who aren't from minority communities working with individuals where they don't want to offend. Um, they do have questions because actually they've just never had the opportunity to ask those questions but they don't always feel that they can ask those questions and also where do you go to ask those questions and I think it's really important to realise that that actually th there's a lot of external pressures that are placed onto systems and the people within those systems and I think we really need to just go back to on a very human level just having conversations with people just interacting and um, overcoming some of those barriers. I think, I, I, I honestly believe that having conversations is the best way to increase our understanding um, and overcome some of those barriers. And I know certainly within my own work, when I do have those conversations, you know, they're, they're absolutely fantastic conversations. You learn so much both ways. Um, and I've certainly appreciated it. And I know the people I've spoken to have appreciated it. So I think recognising that actually people genuinely do want to support and help, but they don't always know how. And that goes both ways. Also speaks to the need to the the criminal justice system to get much better at at attracting a more diverse group of staff. Really, I think. Um, but moving back yeah. to your research, the the literature on domestic violence more generally seems to speak increasingly of the role of conflict in couples and the possibility that women might themselves use violence more frequently than was previously thought. Were all the victims of domestic violence in your study women? Yes, they were. Um, so I did two studies. One was with um, female survivors um, to, to basically learn about what their experiences were. Uh, and the second study was with professionals who were working in a supportive capacity. And they were both males and females. And they worked with a really wide variety of uh, different Muslim population groups. 
Um, I think just in relation to that comment, I think I would say that actually we need to consider, um, well, before we, we before we think, okay, is, it, is there female conflict involved as well? Is there female aggression involved as well? Actually, what's happening? What is the community like for that person? What is their situation? Um, what's actually happening for them before we then go on to, okay, how, what, what's then happening in terms of, is it a two-way uh, conflict situation? What's, what's going on? And look at it a bit deeper, um, because I think, yes, whilst the literature is there and it's telling us this, um, who, does that rep who does that literature represent? Has it been done with different population groups? So is it representative enough or as, is it just giving us a picture for um, specific population groups? And I think that's an important question to ask. Mm, mm, it sounds like it. How, how, did you, how did you conduct your research? Um, so I did qualitative research and I conducted semi-structured interviews with the two groups that I mentioned. Um, and really what I was trying to find out was what were their experiences of how domestic violence and abuse manifested at a community level. So what did it really look like for those individuals who were going through that situation and then for professionals who were supporting, whether it was survivors or those who were perpetrating abuse or the families that were involved. So really trying to understand what was happening um, within different communities in terms of how the DVA actually manifested. And what were your findings? Um, so the, the core finding is this idea of when you are considering communities who are a lot more close-knit in nature, then actually the shape of the domestic violence and abuse is different. You can't focus on just two primary individuals within a relationship. Actually, you need to look at the setup of that community. You need to look at the interaction and the networks of, of those interactions, basically, of people that are surrounding those two individuals. So recognising that actually there might not be one primary individual perpetrating the abuse. There might be several, or it might be that actually it's someone else who is the primary uh, individual perpetrating the abuse and the, the partner or the spouse is secondary in that picture. Um, so, so there you've got the issue of who's perpetrating but then you've got the issue of who's upholding the structures of domestic violence and abuse as well. Um, so who's making it difficult to leave? Who's facilitating the processes where actually survivors can leave? So it's very much about the um, extended network of relationships and what that means for how domestic violence and abuse uh, manifests. Because if you've got an extended uh, nature of um, interactions to consider, that means your interventions also have to be different. You can't work with just that individual and think, OK, you have to consider just the individual and potentially any children. Actually, you have to consider who else does that individual need to consider in every single decision that they make. Um, so this idea that it's, it's not limited to just those two individuals. It sounds um, like that could be really relevant to, you know, there, there must be other parts of society where people are very embedded in in groups and communities where your research might offer something useful to to that experience as well. Not, you know, even if they're not Muslims um, experience having that experience. Yeah, I would hope so. Um, so it comes to mind that other faith groups, but also non-faith groups and um, potentially traveller communities 
So where you have got that close interaction and uh, the close-knit nature of the community, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of learning that could be done there. Um, I don't think we've really explored that properly in the literature. Um, I've, I've not come across much myself that there may be things out there. But yeah, I'm hoping it might be transferable to other communities as well. Thank you. So, Ramanara, um, I was going to ask, do you think that being immersed in the Muslim community mitigates or amplifies the impacts of abuse for those who experience it? I'm not, I'm not sure it does either, to be honest. I think it's more about just understanding that actually how the domestic violence and abuse manifests is different. It takes, shapes, it takes shape in a different form. Um, and I think in every community you've got issues around either um, amplifying it or, or mitigating it. And certainly I did find both protective elements as well as contrib contributory factors. But I think it's more about the shape of the DVA, how it looks, how it's experienced, that is different, that needs um, consideration, uh, which obviously then has an impact in terms of what interventions would be appropriate um, and what interventions are potentially being missed at, at present. Thank you. So, so really, one can't make broad generalisations. I think that's what you're you're saying, and it depends upon all kinds of other circumstances. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. So, what role did faith itself play in the dynamics around the domestic abuse? So that was a really interesting finding. Um, I think there's a bit of an assumption, certainly within Muslim communities, that um, at a certain level, I think there's a bit of an assumption where people think the scripture is used to uphold DVA practices um, and to uh, maintain that kind of power and control. But actually what I found was the opposite, that in terms of um, perpetrating abuse, scripture was very rarely referenced whereas survivors who were trying to carve a way out of that abusive situation were very much turning to scripture, both in their personal journey, but also their open journey in terms of leaving the relationship as well, that actually that was the one source they were turning to. Um, so just to give you an example, I had one survivor was talking about going into family meetings armed with books to say, look, I don't have to put up with this. My religion says this is not part of the faith. Um, and here is the evidence, so argue the evidence basically. And, and, and it, was, it was challenging, but no one could argue that evidence because it was there, it was written as part of the, the scripture and the faith and what's um, fundamental to the faith. Um, whereas actually in terms of perpetrating abuse, there was so much against that, that, that actually marriage was a place of sanctity and that to harm a person in any way, shape or form went against the very grains and fundamentals of the faith. Um, so that was a really interesting finding and and that was essentially for, for all the survivors I spoke to, whether it was in their own personal kind of realisation or in the way they carved a way out of the relationship, that was what they used to um, get their freedom basically and to, um, to attain their autonomy and to attain their rights by using scripture and using the faith and understanding that it was okay to leave that kind of a relationship. So it kind of gave them some leverage, some confidence. What were you going to say, Naomi? I was thinking, I think it 
I think that's really interesting to hear that and also I can imagine um, there must be quite a lot of frustration with assumptions that non-Muslims might make because Ramana I came across you at a conference where someone was suggesting that your faith itself um, legitimised um, abusiveness and it, you know I think it must be quite frustrating dealing with those kind of stereotypes. It is, and actually, this is a really interesting part. So within within my research, one of the things I found that what was happening at an external level, both on social and political spectrums, in terms of the narrative that was being um, upheld regarding Islam and Muslims, had a direct impact then in terms of domestic violence and abuse, and how, whether or not individuals were able to seek help or get support. So actually, this idea of there was such a negative external narrative that when survivors tried to reach out for help, they were told that you're just going to add to more fuel to the fire in terms of the negativity that Muslims already experience in the mainstream. So then that meant, well, do they go out and seek help? Are they contributing to that, to that um, wider narrative? Are they making the situation worse? Um, are they being selfish, for example, because they are actively speaking out um, against, against their own, if you like? Um, I think I think that narrative certainly does exist externally. I think there are pockets that also exist internally. So I think there's education that needs to happen at both levels. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's quite awful, isn't it? Really, if you think that that that's been used as a barrier to to reaching out for help, perhaps. Yeah, and I think it actually puts so much pressure on those survivors who are trying to you know find a way through their experience they, they they you know they're struggling to come to terms with what they're already going through trying to find a way out potentially have children to think about have their entire futures to think about and they've got this added pressure of well am i representing the whole of islam as well which just is you know it's a huge task to take on and to ask of anyone let alone someone who's already in a very very difficult um situation Thank you. In, in your writing, um, you use some um, very, very telling phrases, I think. You've got a couple of uh, superordinate uh, uh, phrases, such as the toxicity of silence is one, and barriers to the acknowledgement of abuse. And of course, those phrases in themselves carry so much weight which you then, more descriptively, you, you write that a pervading notion of invisibility resounded throughout the data. Can you say something more about that? Yes, so that was basically in reference to survivors, this idea that both within their communities, but also externally, um, their voices were very much hidden. So within their communities, there was limited platforms in terms of where they could go, who they could speak to, um, trying to get their voices heard. Uh, one survivor was talking about this idea of um, feeling like she was throwing a tantrum like a child just to get herself heard and how difficult it was that no matter how much she was saying about her experiences and how difficult it was and what she was going through, that actually no one was listening internally. But also this idea then, like we mentioned about the external pressures placed on those survivors, then 
actually when you go externally you've got this additional level of consideration that you're representing the faith or you're seen to represent the faith so actually how much can you say because again um, if you say x y and z you, there's certain assumptions that are made so the pressure is to remain silent throughout both within communities but also externally when you're trying to seek help so it almost became like survivors were invisible um, both within their communities but also externally when it came to accessing help from different services. Yeah, that's a, that's a very powerful phenomenon, that uh, kind of sense of not being seen, not being heard. And, and of course it's very common and uh, associated in many areas with uh, power, uh, the power of some over others. I think you described that very well. Can you tell us about your web model of reintegra reintegration? And do you think it might have a wider utility beyond the South Asian community? Um, so yes, the web model of domestic violence and abuse. Basically, I'm hoping that this model um, can be used to show how domestic violence and abuse manifests for this is obviously for Muslim communities, but potentially for other close-knit communities as well. So this model was developed as a direct result of my research. Um, I brought both studies together in a multi-perspective manner and looked at what were both, what was I getting from both studies? What, what was the data across both studies telling me about how domestic violence and abuse manifested? Um, so I, I drew up some themes and I found that they were on different levels, but they all interacted. So I mapped that out in a visual diagram. Um, and hence that accumulated in the um, web model of uh, DVA. But it was very much about showing the fact that there's different levels involved. So we had a, um, an individual psychosocial spiritual level, which was the first level. We had a stakeholder level, um, which was about the additional individuals who are involved in that situation. There was um, the third level was about intersectionality. So this idea about education, um, cultural norm normative practices in the faith and how those interacted with the DVA situation. And then finally was um, the macro level. So thinking about society more broadly uh, on both the social and political spectrum, what was happening and how did that impact service provision, which then filtered back through the stakeholders, through intersectionality, right down to the individual at the core being the survivor and how how that then impacted on their experience of domestic violence and abuse. Um, so really what I'm trying to do with this model is sh to sh demonstrate that difference and the, uh, the broader um, areas that need consideration when dealing with um, domestic violence and abuse within close-knit communities um, potentially. So obviously the model in this case applies to the Muslim community, Muslim communities I should say, um, uh, within my research, but I'm hoping that it can be transferred in future to other close-knit communities um, just by changing the terminology and ch changing some of the structure as, as required per different community. Thank you. Naomi, this is your field of expertise. Do you have any questions about that? I don't, know, I, I don't know about that. I was just thinking, um, I was just thinking actually that there's possibly also implications for people in some working class sections of society as well where people are very much embedded in a, a community a local community um, that it might not just be faith-based communities but that there may well be other other parts of society hmm. 
something. Okay, good. So, Ramanara, coming back to you um, as a person, do you think your own identity as a Muslim strengthened your research in any way? Would it have been possible for someone who wasn't a Muslim to reach the same understanding of these issues? Or do you think you had your rather privileged and special access? So that's an interesting question that I, I think I'm still kind of grappling with. Um, I would say in terms of actually just access to the community, there was definitely a clear advantage there uh, because I was known in the community um, and obviously with such a sensitive research topic, survivors in particular needed to know, well, who was I and why was I doing this and what kind of questions was I going to ask and what was going to happen to their data. And the fact that I had already worked in this sector um, really helped with that, um, just in terms of building that trust up for survivors to know that it was okay to speak and that actually what they said would be treated with with the due diligence that was required, particularly in relation to navigating um, close-knit communities. So I think that definitely helped. In terms of the data, um, and actually even just conducting the interviews, um, there was this idea of survivors not having to explain certain concepts, not having to explain certain cultural norms, because I already understood those. So rather than having to explain their whole life history before they get to the issue itself, they were able to just get into the issue because they already they knew that I had that pre-understanding and had that shared understanding with them of what they were having to navigate. So I think that in that sense, it definitely helped. And even in terms of interpreting the data, obviously, I went through a lot of that with my supervisor as well. And it was interesting how we understood it from different perspectives as well. So it was very useful to have a non-Muslim supervisor who was able to give me different perspectives. But at the same time, it was useful for me to be there to say, but this means this in this context and in this culture to bring out those nuances. And I think actually it's bringing out those nuances that are so important. Um, and it can, if, if you don't know what those nuances are or where to look, then you are going to overlook them. And it might be that actually those nuances are the critical bits of information. Um, and yeah, if you, if you don't know where to look or how to look, then, then actually those things are going to get missed. Um, and I have in previous research I've done as well, there, and in, in terms of the work I've done as well, um, individuals have said to me this idea of it's tiring going for support, it's tiring accessing mainstream services because I want to just talk about this, but in order to talk about this issue, I have to explain my entire history and my culture and everything else before I can even get to that point. Um, so it kind of detracts from um, the efficacy of the service as well because they're having to explain their entire identity, um, which can be really draining if you think about it. You know, you're there for, you have specific needs, but you're having to explain who you are as a person before you can even talk about what your needs are. Yeah, that's very interesting. Of course, actually you're raising a, a major issue for pretty much all of qualitative uh, research. Are you... Uh, does your knowing help you to see or do you see what you know, as it were? How did you protect yourself against that? Yeah, I think you do have to be careful in terms of making sure you're not leading the data with what you already know. Um, and there were, there were points where I did kind of jump ahead in my writing, but my supervisor was absolutely fantastic in terms of pulling me back on that and uh, making me realise what I was doing. Um, so I think, yeah, you've got to have that um, sort of self-reflexivity and really question what you're doing 
um, and how you're doing everything and almost almost put everything under a magnifying glass in terms of all the processes and procedures that you follow and in terms of your analysis it's, itself as well. Um, so it was very much about taking that back to my supervisor, getting it checked, but also me double checking myself um, coming back back to my analysis and um, having conversations with lots of different people as well. I think that really helped to make sure separate to make sure I was separating out what was from my own self and actually what what was actually happening and what my data was telling me. Um, so those are the kind of measures I, I put in place. And did, did your research have any implications for treatment? So interestingly, whilst the model centres around um, the survivor, so sorry, when you say treatment, do you mean in terms of those perpetrating abuse? Uh, yeah, well that, and also I guess in providing support to the victims as well, and I mean both are, yes. both are important within that picture, aren't they? Yes, so, so essentially the, the model at the minute I'm hoping can be used as a tool to um, support practitioners who are working in a supportive capacity with survivors. So at the minute I'm actually in discussion with a few different organisations talking about how can we apply this model in a practitioner setting to better understand the, the individual who's coming for support. So finding new ways to ask questions, if you like, or um, different types of questions and to really put the survivor at the focal point and let them lead on what their needs are. Um, so I'm hoping that's one thing we can do and test to see the efficacy of the model. Does it help in terms of supporting and identifying the, the wider range of experiences for survivors, particularly from close-knit communities? Um, but also the interesting thing is that um, the model also um, has a place for those who are perpetrating abuse. So it also actually shows the different networks and considerations for those individuals as well. So potentially, for example, when you're thinking about one person who's perpetrating abuse and then you think, well, who else might be supporting that individual in that process? So then if you're thinking about interventions for those perpetrating abuse, it'd be thinking about, well, who's their network and who's supporting them in their thought processes and who's challenging them in their thought processes, both with individuals, but also other factors involved. So um, there potentially is a kind of dual use for the model. Um, but initially we're starting off with just looking at, well, what, what does it mean for survivors and how we better better support survivors, uh, both through who are going through the process and coming out of it as well. I think it's quite interesting to think about it all from a systems point of view, isn't it? And to think about how mm -hmm. people all function within a system. I don't know if you've seen the recent, there's some um, projects with, um, with, um, people who perpetrate domestic violence and also survivors of domestic violence within Aboriginal communities in Australia, whereby the perpetrator continues to live within the community, but there's emphasis within the system on how they make sense of um, their actions and in order to ensure that the person takes responsibility and is, and is supported in desisting from that in the future, but also providing meaningful support to the survivor of the abuse at the, at the same time mm -hmm. and I suppose your your web model seems to speak to more of an understanding of a system like that than to just think about directing interventions at, at the two individuals that might be at the centre of that. 
Yes, absolutely, because the reality is in close-knit communities, you are working within a system. So everything that happens at one level has a ripple effect all the way through that system. So therefore, to just pluck those two individuals out is very artificial and very superficial mm -hmm. as well. You're not going to have the level of impact you want unless you consider the system that they are working within. Um, so this idea of taking all of that into account and actually utilising that because there will be beneficial aspects to that system as well. So this idea of actually what are those beneficial aspects? How can we identify those and how can we use those to support this process of both resistance um, and um, future resistance as well? Um, or, but also in terms of prevention, like put you thinking about, well, what are the structures that we can work with at the outset to try and prevent this kind of um, behaviour occurring initially? But then what do we do afterwards if it does occur in terms of working with the entire system again? And I think it is a I think it's a it holds a lot of strength. Um, there's certainly a lot of power within that. So one of the papers I've delivered is this idea of communities as powerful agents of change. So within my model, the stakeholders, they're not just bystanders. They're not just there spectating on the side. They're actually actively engaged. So therefore, if you can draw them into the process as active participants from the outset, then that means you have a lot of power in terms of creating change at a community level, both in terms of prevention, but support afterwards as well. Yeah, it sounds really powerful. We, we recently interviewed uh, Michael Hallett and Byron Johnson about the role of faith in the criminal justice system. And I'm conscious that whilst faith wasn't the exclusive focus of your research, it is present and visible within the research, which sets it aside from lots of other forensic work. Do you think other researchers should be thinking more about faith? I think certainly. So speaking from my own experiences, both on a personal and professional level, um, where faith is important to a person and it's part of who they are and core to their identity, actually it necessitates that you've got to include that within whatever intervention or whatever support it is. Because if you don't, you're not actually reaching the core of the person as they understand themselves. So then in terms of your interventions and support, it's always going to be limited Whereas actually, if you're going to the core of that person in terms of how they see themselves and position themselves in society, that's your strongest point because you're, you're identifying with the, the thing that makes them who they are, basically, or who they want to be. Um, so actually, to go to that core of their identity, I would say, is so important. So when you take the Islamic faith, for example, there's a lot of... Um, so historically, we have a really strong tradition in terms of Islamic psychology, and there's a bit of a revival going on in that area at present. And it's this idea of who are you as a person? How do you function as a person in relation to yourself and other people, but also in relation to the divine being as well? So this idea of if you are connected to a divine entity, what does that mean for how you, how you conduct yourself, who you are as a person, what you do, what you don't do? So if you are able to then work with a person on that level, that's where change is going to happen because that's how they self-identify. Whereas if you're working at a more generic level, that's everything that's external and more superficial. So yes, there may be some changes, but actually it's not to the core of that person. Um, and certainly I'm finding that 
people do want when, when faith is important to them people do want to talk about faith and they do want to include it as part of um services and per, a part of interventions but there's not always the systems to support it so we did a piece of research with um a, a grassroots charity called the lantern initiative recently talking about services in terms of mental health care and mental addressing mental health needs and there was this idea that um uh, so it was within muslim communities and the respondents were saying that actually we want our faith to be addressed within services within that support system because it shapes who we are and there's so many resources within our faith as well that will help us to strengthen um our healing process basically so it's very much about going to the core of that person and working with the core as they define themselves um i think yeah i think that is being missed and i think there is potentially a lot of potential within that area Thank you. The majority of interventions in prisons are developed and delivered by white women with mainly a kind of Christian background. Um, and yes, over a quarter of people in custody are of black or Asian heritage. Do you think this might have implications for the appropriateness or efficacy of uh, offending behaviour programmes? Um, so again, this kind of takes me back to the paper um, currently working on with um, uh, that Sophia Ibrahim is leading on, this idea that actually staff recognise that they are not able to fully understand individuals, um, particularly from a faith background, if they don't share that faith background, um, and that they would like to, but they don't know how to. Uh, and that actually sometimes that does end up manifesting in terms of barriers in uh, in regards to interventions and how those interventions are delivered because there'll be questions that they may feel that they can't ask you know they don't want to offend um so then how how do you address those things but actually from the person on the receiving end that might be the question that needs to be asked in terms of going back to what i was saying about identity and how a person identifies in within their core self um so i think there there is a potential sort of gap there that could be worked upon. And I know that certainly within the research, what they're finding is um, um, uh, intervention staff do want that support. They do want resources. Um, they do want to feel better equipped. Um, so, so that's definitely um, really positive. Um, whether or not in terms of the engagement level, um, so what, from what I understand, there does seem to be issues around engagement with different communities and again, I think it goes back to this issue of, well, what's what's appropriate and suitable in one culture or one community um, that may not be appropriate for other communities. So this idea of talking about an offence that you've committed so uh, and the shame that may come with that. So in different communities, how shame is um, manifest and how it is expressed will be different. So for some communities, it may be that that's a very private thing and you don't talk about it on public platforms. So then treatment and intervention may be seen as a public platform. Um, again, this idea of um, treatment and intervention itself, you know, how do we understand that? Um, is that something, do you do it in a public space or do you do it in a kind of more private arena? So looking at what, what interventions are, how they take place, what their structures are and whether they um, work in tandem with the cultures of those individuals who they are targeted at or whether actually they're they're creating more distance um, i think yeah i think there's 
scope for lots of work to be done around trying to understand this a bit better. Thank you. That, that's a pretty full answer, but you're also indicating really that it's an area that we probably poorly understand at the, at the moment. Which is worrying, really, because it kind of suggests that lots of money is being spent on activities which you know, we're not really very clear about. Yes, it is. It is very worrying. Uh, I, I honestly think we need to go back to understanding individuals and communities in their communities before it gets to the stage of we need to support them after the event has happened, because actually there's a lot going on for communities already on the outside in their in their context in their community settings a lot of challenges they're facing um, that aren't being addressed and then it's just one thing just adds to another just adds to another and it just builds up until you end up um, interacting with the criminal justice system and and once you're in that system obviously we know it, it's almost um, it's almost a one-directional kind of path unfortunately um, uh, I think we really know, need to go back to investing in our communities in a more preventative capacity um, and understanding how we can prevent at the root rather than going to trying to solve an issue or put a plaster on a problem at the end. Thank you very much. So I understand that you're involved in a, a new initiative, which sounds very exciting, that's launching in May. Would you like to tell us something about that? Yes, so it's a bit daunting. <laughs> so we're, um, we're, we're setting up the Centre for the Study of Wellbeing at the Markfield Institute of Higher Education. Um, it's actually been a year in the making. Um, but what we're trying to do is, um, so through my work, I've, I've interacted with different communities. And one of the things I've consistently seen is this idea of a real richness at the grassroots level. However, there's very little systems support and structural support for those initiatives. So essentially what I would, what I'm hoping to do through this um, centre is to provide platforms for grassroots organisations and individuals working at the grassroots level to really showcase their expertise. So whether that's through supporting them through research and academia, like we did with the Lantern Initiative, where we had several partners, um, so several academic and non-academic partners, um, showcasing the work, doing research and then producing reports to say look this is what we're doing, this is how we understand our communities because these organisations and individuals are already embedded within communities, they know how to access communities and they know what the issues are in the communities that they work with and how to work with those communities whereas when you've got organisations that are um, working at a much higher level there's often a disconnect in between how they are able to connect to communities and work with those communities. Um, so it's very much about providing a platform for those grassroots organisations, embedding the research within those organisations to, um, to showcase their work and hopefully um, uh, increase their profile. But also um, a lot of our students at the Markfield Institute um, have really rich backgrounds in terms of the heritage, but also the work they are doing um, so our students are involved in so many different projects, you know, you've got individuals who are leading institutions, you've got individuals who are, you know, very, very active in their communities in different ways. Um, so it was about trying to connect those individuals up as well 
provide them with peer mentoring support, but also external mentoring support as well. And again, bringing that expertise that is there at a grassroots level uh, and providing um, platforms for them to showcase their expertise and hopefully then connecting them with larger organisations and institutions so that there's that mutual benefit for society. Yes, so that's launching in May, um, uh, May the 10th. Uh, details are on the Markfield website. And um, yeah, hopefully it will be something beneficial. Brilliant. Thanks very much indeed. So finally, we always like to ask our guests about how they manage to keep themselves sustained and emotionally nourished when doing this kind of quite challenging work. Yes, it is. It is really challenging. I know when I've been into forensic environments, it's that certainly like I feel the physical impact it has on my body. Um, and I've shared that experience with, with a few people. I think for me, it comes back to really my faith and regrounding myself in my faith and understanding that wherever you can support people, um, essentially, that's that's what I'm trying to do. Obviously, at the minute, we're going through Ramadan. So that's like a deep, intense spiritual retreat throughout the month. So that 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 always helps to um, reground myself um, and just just always going back to questioning what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And other people who are involved are they being placed focally um, i think that introspection is the thing that really makes sure that i i kind of keep myself grounded and firm in terms of what i'm doing um, and just helps me in terms of my own kind of spiritual um, nourishment thank you very much thank you ramanara it's so interesting given there's a lot to think about <laughs>